Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you as as sinners, as those who are struggling, as those who constantly forget and who take our eyes off of you. God, I pray that this morning you would help us through your Son, Jesus Christ, to even more love you, that you would open our eyes to your glory, that you would open our ears to listen, comprehend, understand, and believe the gospel, and that you would change our our lips, our tongues, so that we would be eager to proclaim it. God, help us this day. We're trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. How do you relate to God? I mean, who is God to you? I mean, how do you think about God? Is Do you see God as some sort of distant, transcendent, far-off, cold God? who maybe makes some rules that we need to live by, and we try to do that to the best of our ability with really no or little help along the way? You see God as some sort of, of dictator that's ready to throw his hammer down on you, right? Some sort of moral cop that wants to dictate and, and judge your every step, your every action. There to make sure that you do more good than bad. Or... Do you see God as, as, as a buddy or a friend? You know, someone there, um, when life gets kind of out of control, you know, he's there to kind of give you a hand in those Jesus-take-the-wheel moments of your life? Is he some sort of great Santa Claus in the sky that you just kind of go to anytime you really want something? You think, okay, if I do enough good, if I'm, I'm more nice than I am naughty, then he'll give me the present that I want. You see him as something else, maybe a teacher or something else that you fashion into your own image. Is it, is, is it that you are made in God's image or do you make God in yours? I mean, think about this. How do you relate to God? How do you think about it? What's your relationship with Him like? Today, most people hold to this, this idea that uh, Christian Smith titled Moral Therapeutic Deism. That God is, is some sort of divine clockmaker, that He created everything and kind of set it into motion, but basically leaves it to run on its own. And He gave enough of His law, enough of His rules, that, that He kind of stands off as a far off, distant, one day judge that will condemn or give uh, blessings to those who do more good than bad. And, and he's, the, he's left enough of an impression of himself that people can, can, if they want to or need to, can take comfort in him. Or maybe they can look to him to help realize their potential if they should so choose to do that. Most of us think of God as some sort of cold, distant creator turned rulemaking crutch. That's how we see God. And I wonder if you feel that way about him. In a room this large, knowing that statistics are what they are, more than likely, a lot of you do. 
And if you don't all the time, you, there are times in your life where you wonder, where are you, God? Are you sleeping? Or maybe, maybe you're on the other extreme. This new age movement takes with it this idea of creating God in our own image. That we basically fashion God in, into whatever we want Him to be. Oh God, I like the idea of God being love, so I want to see God as this altruistic, universal acceptor that's going to take me with, re, without regard for what I do or how I live or how much I acknowledge Him. I want to take this and this and this and this and this about God and I want to create in Him to be what I want Him to be. He is what I want Him to be and nothing more. But here's the thing. No matter, though we may try, we have no right to create God. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And we, cannot, we can't, can't just dismiss Him or neglect Him or ignore Him as some sort of far-off, moralizing teddy bear. God is real. God is sovereign. God is personal. We see Him clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is not far off, and nor can we, can we create our own personal Jesus. In Jesus, we see God, and His work in us changes our lives. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 37. That's page 843 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. This passage, in this passage, we'll see that Jesus' intimate interaction with this deaf man reveals to us the nature and work of God. So please read along with me. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. First, Jesus is intimately involved in lives in that he softens hearts with his compassion. Now, last week we saw that Jesus has left Galilee and he's traveled northwest into Gentile territory on this rest-seeking, rest-giving mission. Um, last week he went up to, to Tyre and he did that to get away from the Jews. He, he wanted to distance himself from them. And so he's among these people, these Gentiles, whom the Jews considered to be unclean, considered to be defiled, considered to be unworthy to have fellowship with God just because of who they were. They weren't Jews. We saw in verse 31 there that, that he's gone to Tyre where he met the Syrophoenician woman. And after that, he headed north up along the coast to Sidon. He was there for I don't know how long, but then he took sort of this horseshoe going east across and then back down on the east side of Galilee to this region of the Decapolis. 
The Decapolis means ten cities. It's ten Gentile cities. So what we see here is that Jesus has spent his entire time among Gentiles. Among these people who were considered unclean, undefiled, and unworthy to approach God. And who, by his presence with them, would have defiled him, making him, according to Jewish standards, unworthy to approach God. And though he is not openly taught, according to record, and though we don't know how many miracles he has performed, we do know that at least one woman, the Syrophoenician woman from last week, has placed her faith in him, and that he has made his way down to the Decapolis, the location of a previous dramatic exorcism and subsequent faith. The last time that we were in the region of Decapolis was back in chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus had just crossed over the Sea of Galilee as it was raging, ready to sink the boat. He was asleep there. His disciples woke him up in panic and they cried out. Jesus spoke three words and he completely calmed the storm. And as soon as they land on the shore, as soon as he gets out of the boat, he's confronted with this Gentile man that is, is possessed by a legion of demons. At least 2,000 demons possessed this man. And Jesus confronts him and frees him. This man with this horrible past, this man who was possessed, this man who was an unclean Gentile, this man who had no training whatsoever by Jesus, and he calls this man to be his first missionary to the Decapolis. He said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This was the only time that Jesus had been recorded in being in the region of Galilee. He was there only moments. He encountered one person, one Gentile, captured by thousands of demons. He sets the man free. And the people gather around, and in fear they ask him to leave, and so he does. But this one man, this unclean man, this Gentile man with a horrible past and no training, goes out and starts telling everyone about Jesus, about what he has done for him, about the mercy that he has shown him, so that people just are marveled, they are amazed, they cannot believe it. So that by the time Jesus returns again, You've got these people who had before asked him to leave are now bringing people to him. Matthew, in his account, adds in chapter 15, verse 30, that, that not only did they bring this one deaf man who was mostly mute to him, but it said that as Jesus sat on the mountain outside of the city, that great crowds began to come to Jesus. It doesn't say one great crowd, but many great crowds. It was plural. They were coming to Jesus, and they were bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and others. And they put them at His feet, and He healed them. Like waves to the seashore, these waves of people kept coming and they were bringing these people in need of healing and they literally tossed them down at His feet and asked Him, begged Him to heal these people. And Jesus does. All of this because one unworthy man faithfully told others about Him. They bore witness to what Jesus has done and how He'd shown mercy upon Him. This deaf and mostly mute man was just one of many that this crowd eagerly threw at Jesus' feet. 
But Mark isolates this one event and focuses on this man so that he can highlight Jesus' compassion. According to verse 32, the crowd begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man. But Jesus goes a lot farther than that. He does so much more than just lay his hand on this man. Verses 33 and 34, Mark actually mentions six steps that Jesus takes in his encounter with this man in order to show and reveal his compassion for him. First, Jesus takes the man aside. He doesn't just heal the man right out there in the midst of the crowd. It says he pulls him away privately. Imagine how difficult, how hard that would have been. These throngs of people just keep coming in waves towards Jesus, but yet he pulls him aside because he wants to say, hey, listen, this is not about entertaining or amazing the crowd. This is not about me showing how great I am, how marvelous I am. This is not about my fame. This is about you. I'm pulling you aside because I want you to see that I care about you. Second, Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. Now, he doesn't have to do that. He does it in order to communicate to this deaf man of what he's going to do for him. This is like simple sign language, right? I don't know how to communicate, you know, signs, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick my fingers in your ears so you know that I'm about to heal you. Third, after Jesus, after spitting, touches the man's tongue. Jesus takes this bodily fluid that is considered unclean, puts it on his fingers, touches the unclean tongue of an unclean man, and he does that to say, guess what? I am going to cleanse you of your disability. Fourth, Jesus looked up. He looked up to heaven to show the man where his power comes from. It comes from God. Fifth, Jesus sighs. He sighs because it's his example of him praying for this man and his his example of him grieving over the effects of sin on humanity. This man's deafness is a consequence of sin. And sixth, Jesus says, Ephatha, be opened. And instantly this man was healed. Now Jesus didn't have to do a single bit of that in order to heal this man. You realize that? He didn't have to do a thing. Last week, when we looked at Jesus and his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, this woman comes to Jesus and she's begging Jesus to cast this demon out of her daughter, right? And so Jesus says, hey, you know what? It's done. Go home. She's fine. And she goes home and and sure enough, her little girl is well. Jesus doesn't even say, be gone. He just says, she's fine. Go ahead. This is the same Jesus who as the storm was raging, about ready to sink his boat, speaks three words, and the winds and the waves completely cease. So when Jesus comes to a man who is deaf and mostly mute, it's not that this is a a more challenging, a more difficult miracle for Jesus to perform, and so he's got to go through this magic ritual, this sort of incantation or hocus-pocus to be able to get this man healed. Jesus does this to show his compassion for this man. He does it to communicate to him. Though he doesn't have to, he does it. He does it willingly. And when you think about this, this event, it's beautiful. Because we are seeing Jesus intimately meeting this man's needs. You see, in that day and age, if you were deaf and you were mute, 
you were treated as those who were insane, or those that were stupid, those who were incapable of knowing anything, like a mental disability. You were treated as less than human. You had no rights. You were not considered about what you might want or what you might need because you had no way of knowing that. And they thought that because you had no way of telling people what you understand. You see, without communication, you were just basically cattle. And that's how this man was treated. He was ignored. He was isolated. He was neglected. He was not considered at all. But yet Jesus comes to the man and He takes him aside. And He looks at him in the eyes and He says, I see you. In His actions, He conveys, I know that you understand me. I know how you feel. I understand your loneliness. I understand your isolation. I understand your heartbreak. I understand your pain. And I grieve with you. I am going to heal you. I am going to make you clean. And when you recognize that, you can't just dismiss this as hocus pocus. This is everything. Jesus is conveying His compassion to this man. A a compassion that this man desperately needs. Though I know it is not mentioned explicitly, when we understand the intimacy of Jesus' interaction with this man who has lived as a prisoner in his own mind, barely able to communicate to anyone that his heart was softened in that moment. How do I know this? Because as I just described the context to you, your heart was softened. You began to understand that Jesus cares and Jesus is communicating that to this man. You see, Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our hearts far better than we do. He's there to meet our greatest needs. He's there to confront the things that we love, the idols that we've placed in our hearts that keep us from God. And we see this repeatedly throughout Mark. I mean, think about it. Back in chapter 1, Jesus comes across this leper, and though Jesus needs only say a word, in fact, He doesn't even need to say a word, Jesus goes ahead and He touches this man. This untouchable man, he, he lays his hand on him. Think about what it would be like to be a leper. To be outcast. You're not able to live among the town. You had to live in the caves and, and away and only with lepers. And you had to shout out unclean, unclean, unclean whenever someone would approach. Imagine, you could not go around your loved ones. This man may have had children that he was never able to hug. He was untouchable, yet Jesus touches him. When the paralytic man was lowered from the roof into the the home where Jesus was teaching, Jesus deals with that thing that was that, that issue that was probably plaguing this man's soul. Before he ever says, Take up your mat and walk, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus called Levi, the hated tax collector, the one that was considered a coward and a traitor and and a pro-Roman Jew hater. He calls him with the very same calling that he gives to the respectable Jewish fishermen. He set a demoniac free to give his life for the purpose of telling others about Jesus. He's now stripped from all the enslavement and now he can sing and run and dance and proclaim He has life. 
He challenged the fear in the hearts of the disciples and in Jairus. He, he challenged the hemorrhaging woman to come out of her hiding, to step away from her selfishness and superstition, and to proclaim for everyone what the Lord has done for her. And he called the Syrophoenician woman to humble herself, to admit who she really is. The rich young ruler had to give up everything to follow Christ. You see, Jesus is intimately aware of our hearts. He is there to meet us, to give us comfort, to give us help, to give us healing when needed, but also to challenge the idols that we love. The things like the fear of man, riches, relationships, or pride. In His compassion, Jesus meets us right where we need to be met. And it never looks quite the same with help, with encouragement, and with admonishment. But He does it in order to soften our hearts, to help us to see that He is our true satisfaction, that He can do what the world cannot, that He can provide in ways that the world never can. He is not distant or cold. Jesus is compassionate. And His compassion reveals to us, it serves to soften our hearts towards Him. Second, Jesus opens eyes to behold the glory of God. This man is not here by accident. His deafness, his his being nearly mute, is not simply the result of poor genetics or of physical deformity. It's not the result of an accident or his sin or his parents' sin or just plain bad luck. Jesus it's clear that he's there for a purpose, right? In Exodus 4.11, God rhetorically told Moses, who was questioning God's wisdom in sending him to the Egyptians because he, was, he, he stuttered, he says to Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, it reminds me of John chapter 9, the story of the man born blind. Jesus said, hey, listen, it's not because he sinned or because of his parents' sin, but he's born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born deaf and almost mute by the hand of God in order to display the glory of God in the revelation of the Son of God. So far we have seen that, that Jesus has all authority and power of God, right? That he, Because he is God. He has authority to teach as, as with the authority of God, he has, he has the ability to, to cast out demons, to cure those who are sick and disabled. He has the authority to forgive sins, something that only God has. He has the authority over the law. He has authority over nature in calming storms and miraculously feeding thousands and thousands of people and even causing a little girl to rise from the grave. Jesus has that authority because He is the Son of God. He does what normal humans cannot, miraculously causing the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And in touching this man, in lifting his eyes to heaven, in sighing and in commanding, be opened, and miraculously restoring this man's ears and tongue, Jesus is doing far more than simply healing the man. He is opening his eyes to behold God's glory. He is telling him, listen, only God can do this. He looks up to heaven and he says, look, this comes 
from heaven. This comes from God. Yet I'm the one that says be opened. And it happens. So what does that make me? Where am I from? You figure it out. That's faith. That putting two and two together. That math is faith. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is the very reason he wrote this gospel. That is the very first line in his gospel, right? And so, all along the way, Mark wants to paint pictures so that we can see and understand, so that we can behold the glory of God. He doesn't just want to tell us, hey, guess what, guys? Jesus is God, right? That's really convincing, right? Instead, he wants to bring us into the story. He wants to paint a picture so that we can experience it, so that we can feel it, not, not just understand it with our minds, but so that we can experience it with our hearts, so that we are a part of the story. We are overwhelmed as Jesus performs miracle after miracle and says these amazing things and does these amazing things and challenges the unbelief that rules the day. This is why Mark wants to... Paint the picture in events, in particulars, in details, rather than just telling us, simply stating facts. He wants us to put two and two together. One of the important little details that Mark places in this account is a rare word that Jesus used for the speech impediment that this deaf man had. It's only used one other place in the Bible, in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Isaiah 35 speaks of a day that is yet to come, in which God, in which those whom God ransoms and redeems will, will return to God's holy city to be reconciled to God, and there they will see the glory and the majesty of the Lord. And Isaiah talks about how this will be experienced, this will be identified by signs and wonders. And here's how he describes those signs and wonders. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, same word as in Mark, will sing for joy. These things, these very miracles that Jesus is performing will happen as they behold the glory of the Lord. Those who have been ransomed will see and understand that they are beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yet even those who haven't been ransomed, those who have not been saved, those who do not understand and believe in who Jesus is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him, can still, to a degree, marvel at His deeds and affirm that what He does is praiseworthy. I'm sure that out of this crowd that, that, that shouts out, that begins zealously telling everyone about all these wonderful things that Jesus has done, that, that not all of them believe. Verse 37 says that they were astonished beyond measure. That they were saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And that, that He does all things well ought to draw our minds back to Genesis 1.31. We ought to be thinking about God. When God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. It is only God that does all things well. Matthew adds in his account that the Gentile crowd wondered at these miracles and then they glorified the God of Israel. These Gentiles recognized that the God of Israel was the true God. But here's the thing. 
You can honor and respect something without trusting in it. Without really believing, without really obeying, without really following. I mean, have you ever noticed that when you're speaking with unbelievers, a lot of times they have really positive impressions of Jesus. Right? They, they may think that he's only an exemplary moral teacher, you know, kind of like Gandhi. Or they may think that he's a prophet, but they still respect him, don't they? They still look upon him favorably. Friends, it's not enough to think well of Jesus. To think that he's a good idea. It's not enough to just kind of marvel and wonder, if are the things that are done in this Bible, is this true? Are these things real? Is, is he really doing this? And stand back in awe and say, wow, if he did them, then he's done them well. It's not enough to give lip service to, and praise to the God of Israel if you don't truly trust in the God of Israel. You must believe with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength in who Jesus is. You must know and rest in what He has done by dying on the cross from sin and from rising from the grave in order to reconcile sinners to God. That must be your hope and that you are willing at all costs, no matter what the sacrifice, forsaking all others in order to follow Him. That's what it means to believe. Our eyes must be open to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, not just standing in awe of the miracles that we see, but in trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ intimately for my soul. So Jesus softens hearts through His compassion. He opens eyes to behold the glory of God. Third, Jesus opens ears to the gospel. Now, I don't intend to belabor this point, but it is worthy of mentioning. You see, Jesus doesn't just simply heal this deaf man in order to astonish and amaze the crowd. He doesn't just simply heal this man in order to reveal his compassion and how much he cares for people. And Jesus doesn't simply heal this man so that he can have the physical ability to hear. He does it so that he can hear the gospel, so that his ultimate need would be met. Jesus opened his ears, and now maybe, maybe for the first time he could hear. For the first time he could hear the whistling of the wind, he could hear the birds chirp, he could hear the lapping of the waves onto the shore. But you know what else he could hear? He could also, for the first time, hear the testimony of that crowd that said, you know what, Jesus, he does all things well. He could now for the first time hear that man who was enslaved by a legion of demons come and and passionately tell him of all that the Lord has done and how the Lord has shown mercy on him. He can now hear the voice of Jesus, the one who said to his soul, be opened. He can now hear and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, his ultimate need. Friends, the gospel is a word message. It requires hearing, being able to comprehend the good news as it is proclaimed. Fortunately for us, we have other means. We have sign language, we have braille, we have video images that can help us now communicate the gospel so that it can be understood by those who are deaf. But we need to hear. It is a message that must be proclaimed and must be understood. 
There is no saving faith apart from hearing, comprehending, and believing the gospel. Romans 10.17 is clear on this. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. If we are going to truly believe, it requires that we have spiritual ears to hear, to comprehend, and believe the gospel. We can't simply say that we have faith and make up our faith to be whatever we want it to be. It is not enough to say, yeah, I'm spiritual, I believe in these certain things about Jesus or about God or whatever. You must submit to the Word as it is proclaimed, as it is revealed. So God is faithful to make sure that His Word can be articulated, can be understood, can be believed. We must submit ourselves to that Word, not try to twist it, into our own message to suit our own liking. But that ability to hear, both spiritually and physically, comes only from God. We can't make it happen. Just like we can't cause ourselves to hear. I mean, we understand this naturally. I cannot make myself hear. But yet we're so slow to give God the credit for our spiritual hearing. We want to say that it's about me and it's about what I've done. It's about my faith and what I can understand, what I can comprehend, rather than recognizing, you know what? It takes Jesus to open my ears so that I can hear and believe. We must remember back in chapter 4, verse 12, that Jesus taught in parables in order to fulfill God's purposes, which are so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear... um, I'm sorry, so that they may indeed see and not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. The hearing of faith requires more than physical ability. And later in chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus is dealing with the persistent hard hearts of his disciples. How they still don't understand, they still don't get it. And he says, do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? You see how Jesus is tying chapter 4 and chapter 8 together and sandwiched right in the middle is this account in chapter 7 to help them to understand that, listen, if you are going to hear and understand, if you are going to see and believe, it is because I have opened your eyes. I have opened your ears. It is about me and what I can do. And you must understand this. We all need our ears opened by Christ if we are to hear and understand the gospel and walk in obedience that comes from faith and the gospel. And so we all need to be continually praying that God would continue to give us ears to hear, that we would repent and believe the gospel daily, not just as one moment in our lives way back then, but continually so that we might understand and follow Christ, not ourselves so that we can hear the voice of God and His Word and we can know that He is near, that He is here with us. That comes only as Jesus opens our ears. So Jesus softens hearts with His compassion. He opens eyes to behold the glory of God. He opens ears to the Gospel. And fourth, Jesus loosens tongues to proclaim His excellencies. Let's look again at verses 35 through 37. 
It says, And this man's ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This man's tongue was released. It was unbound, unchained as from prison. And he spoke with absolute clarity. Now we sort of neglect how significant it is for a man who is deaf to suddenly be able to speak intelligently. Yet that's exactly what happens. But then Jesus does something that we don't expect. He tells them to be quiet about it. He tells the crowd, hey, hey don't say anything. He charged them not to tell anyone. Now he does this because people perpetually misunderstand who Jesus is. As they go out and they start telling people about Jesus and these miracles that they perform, then people begin to get fanatical about it. And they come because they want healing, because they want to be entertained, they want to see the show, or they want to take Jesus as some sort of political figurehead, as like a king to rule over them. But they continually misunderstand who He is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. They do not get His true identity, His true purposes, His true plan for His people. Ultimately, His true identity, plan, and purposes can only be understood in light of the cross. It's only after His death and resurrection that we can fully know and rightly proclaim Him. And so He commands them to be silent. But here's the thing. The fame of Jesus cannot be contained. It has not been contained. Praise God, by His grace, it hasn't been contained in spite of us. It still goes forward. He's still seen. He's still understood. Their zeal compels them. Their sense of wonder it cannot be smothered. It's burning inside of them and so consumed by their astonishment beyond amazement, they ran out and they told others, Behold, He has done all things well. You need to know this man. You need to see this man. They were overwhelmed by his greatness and they declare it to others. You know, David says in Psalm 51, verses 14 through 15, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth would declare your praise. A recognition of salvation, a recognition of the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of God wells up in songs of praise from the tongue. God opens their lips and they can't help but declare His praises. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. And when the Lord restored the fortune of Zion, behold, we are like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, among the Gentiles, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Though the Gentiles did not fully understand, they were glad and they told the things that the Lord has done for them. Though David and the psalmist did not have the complete revelation of Jesus Christ, they could not keep their tongues from declaring God's praise. And yet we, though we have the completed work of God, we have the completed work, we have the full and final revelation of Jesus Christ, rarely lift our voices to praise Him. 
In fact, we cower, we balk at the opportunity to tell others about Him, those that don't know Him. We fear the consequences, and so we keep our mouths shut. We silence ourselves. Though we understand more, we proclaim less. Now, why is that? Do you realize that if you are a believer, that Jesus has delivered you from your sin? Jesus has given you his word, his full and final word. He has given his Holy Spirit to come and dwell in your hearts so that you might know and discern and understand. So what God has done for you is more than what God has done for this crowd. It's more. Then how can you keep silent? How could you not declare His praise? Do you believe that He has done great things for you? Do you believe that He lives in your heart as He has promised, as He has guaranteed? Then how could you consider Him distant? How could you keep silent? You know, a lot of times the reason why we feel so distant from God It's because we fail to proclaim Him. We fail to put ourselves out there to live in a sense of dependency and ultimate trust on Him. We keep silent. And as we keep silent, we feel more and more and more disconnected. You know, you are not the end of Jesus' purpose for salvation. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that Jesus, it didn't, his, his act of salvation doesn't stop with you? And we, in a sense, we would affirm that, but so often we kind of believe that we are the end. We treat our lives as if we're the end. But Jesus has saved you, and he's added you to his people for a purpose. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through tells us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If he is your Lord and Savior, if you love him as he loved you, then you'll naturally want to talk about him. If you recognize that you have been saved from darkness and been put into his marvelous light, and it is marvelous, it is wonderful, it is far more than I ever dreamed, then why would you love the darkness? Why would you want to run back to it? Why would you live as if you were still there? It's asinine. It makes no sense. We want to talk about the things we love, don't we? It's not hard to talk about what you love. If it's Jesus, then we'll proclaim Him. If it's something else, then we will spend our words on that. But we understand this naturally. All of us have been around couples who are madly in love. And all they were doing is just chatting back and forth. Oh, he's so great. Oh, he's so wonderful. Oh, I love him so much. And you're just like, shut up. Shut up. I can't stand it. Or you've been around somebody that has been waiting for something for a long time. And they're so excited about it. They can't wait. And so they go on and 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 on about it, right? And you're just like, please, stop. Stop it. 
if it's a movie, people get really excited and they dress up as their favorite movie characters and they go and they wait out in the freezing cold for hours and hours and hours upon end so that they can go and they can watch the midnight showing of this movie so that they can be absolutely worthless the entire next day and whatever else they have to do, right? And then they Facebook about it the entire time. They're like tweeting, ooh, you know, Harry Potter, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Or they cry, or they cry when their favorite team loses the big game. What do you talk about? What's the consistent topic of your conversation? What comes up over and over and over again? Who do you talk about? You know, you talk about your family. You talk about your job. You talk about your life goals and ambitions. You talk about what you want. You talk about your possessions. You talk about school. You talk about pop culture. Where does Christ fit into that? How much do you talk about Him? Those who know Christ and love Christ are near to Christ. They proclaim Him. They don't have to work up the courage. It's just there. The more intimate you are with Him, the more you will want to talk about Him. Your tongue will be loosened and you will proclaim His excellencies just as that young couple talks about their lover. If Jesus has saved you, He's drawn you near. He's done the work. He has offered you this relationship. He softens hearts with His compassion. He opens eyes to behold His glory. He opens ears so that you can repent and believe the gospel daily. You can be reminded over and over and over and over again of His love for you. And He loosens your tongues so that you can tell others about how wonderful He is. Friends, know Him. Know Him deeply. Know Him intimately. Know His compassion. Know His glory. And make Him known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we praise You that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we thank you that your love for us, that your nearness to us, that your desire for intimacy with us is not dependent upon our intimacy and our love for you. Because if it were, we would be out of luck. We thank you that you continually remind us over and over and over again how compassionate you are, how near you are, how much you love. We are thank you thankful that you do a work in us to change our hearts to open our eyes and our ears and we God, we pray we ask that you continue to do that so that as a result our tongues would be opened and we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ God help us to see how marvelous he is help us to see that our true satisfaction is found in him help us to love him more than we love these things that we know cannot satisfy God, we pray that we would recognize that your Holy Spirit is always with us, living in our hearts. We cannot be more near to you. 
And so, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.